Our scripture reading for this evening comes to us from 1 Peter in chapter 1, as we continue both in the book of Peter and in the Lord's Day Heidelberg Catechism. So, 1 Peter will read the first 12 verses. And our focus this evening will be on verses 6 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. And this far the reading of Scripture, and in connection with this passage, uh, we will now read Lord's Day 10, dealing with the providence of God. Lord's Day 10, on page 38, in the back of your Psalter. And in Lord's Day 10, we read question 27, and it asks, what do you mean by the providence of God? And the answer is, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs, grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And question 28 asks, what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by His providence does still uphold all things? The answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from His love, 
since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. And dear congregation, in verse 6, Peter says of First Peter, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He is saying here you greatly rejoice by what he has just explained in the, in the previous verses, that, that God the Father has begotten you to a, a living hope. The fact that God keeps you by His almighty power and that you can confess that God is your Father for the sake of Christ and that He will bring you to eternal glory, preserving you and keeping you in this life. You greatly rejoice in that fact as, he, as we considered in the previous weeks that He even calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But then he says, even though now you are grieved, you are in heaviness, you are distressed. The question is, how can we make sense of all these trials in, in our life that we have to face? And so this afternoon we are dealing with this doctrine of providence. We read in the catechism, what is that providence? And just to briefly summarize it again, that the Lord's A10, the question 27 it speaks of the almighty and everywhere present power of God that as if it was by His own hand, He upholds and governs everything in His creation, whether it is um, the creatures, the, the, the grass, the herbs, the rain, the drought, the fruitful and barren years, the food and drink, the health and sickness, the riches and poverty, yea, and all things do not come by chance but by His fatherly hand. That's how we understand providence. And Connecting that with what we read here in Peter, our theme then is greatly rejoicing in the providence of God the Father. We can rejoice in what, even through all what happens in our life, when we understand what this means, what the providence of God means, and who God is for us in the midst of this. And so our first thought that we consider is that God the Father governs your trials. The God who governs everything in this world governs your trials. And there are many. Peter says you have been grieved by various trials, many different trials. Both the trials, as we spoke of earlier in, a number of weeks ago, of the, the, the testing of our faith and the temptations to sin and the various different kind of trials that can in, uh, include. And in God's providence, we undergo many trials. And these trials are, are grievous. He says you are grieved, you're, you're distressed because of them. And Peter's not trying to minimize the trials at all. He knows firsthand the severity of some of these trials. They're, they're painful. They can be very perplexing. We cannot find any joy in them. We cannot find any good in them. If you think of the earthquake that happened in Turkey, if you think of the persecutions that many people undergo, if you think of the many sicknesses that people have to deal with, the grief, the loss of loved ones, 
Hebrews 12 also says, no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful, grievous. And so trials can really seem contrary, can't they? Contrary to what seems right and good in our understanding. They seem contrary to God's protection. Peter just said we're kept by the power of God, and yet we we have to go through these deep trials. How, How is God keeping us? They seem contrary to our own faith. Because when we enter these trials, we begin to doubt God. We begin, begin to deny God. We begin to blaspheme God. or are tempted to anyway, to accuse God or to become bitter. We're tempted to withdraw from God. We're tempted to withdraw from His people. And we're tempted to look at all sorts of other things to find comfort, to find hope, to find something to grab onto. But these are all trials that God deems to be necessary. He knows our frame. He knows that we are frail, that we're of the dust, that we're born in a fallen world. Would you choose for a trial? I don't think so. We choose for feasting. We only choose for the things that would make us happy. How do you plan your vacations or your family gatherings or or our our lives? We we, we plan them around the things that, that we enjoy and that will make us happy. But God plans our lives around what makes us better, better children, holy children. Hebrews 12 verse 10 says, Our human fathers corrected us as they seemed best, but God corrects us for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. And so he's saying correction produces the fruit of righteousness. And Hebrews goes on to say, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. You, think, you can think of what Ecclesiastes 7 says, that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. He says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. Now here the sorrow it is caused by a situation that causes grief, causes sorrow. But the heart is made better. That means the heart is made pleasing to God. It produces the proper characteristics of the heart. Ecclesiastes goes on to say, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth is, is, is a happiness, a happiness that comes from sensual pleasure. A happiness that comes from what what we can take in with our senses, what we delight in with what we taste, what we see, what we feel, what we hear. The the excitement of interacting with other people, things that make us happy. And the foolish hearts just want to have fun. They don't take the life seriously, but they focus on on this perishing world, how we can be pleased. And if we continue in that way, unsaved and then we'll end in eternal destruction, a place where there will be no more pleasure, no more joy, and no God. And so, therefore, God deems trials necessary to turn us unto Him, and also and not only to turn sinners unto Him, but to turn His people more and more to Himself, and to make us see the urgency of drawing near to God, of being right with God. But Peter also says, if need be, if it is necessary, Because the Word also said God does not delight 
in afflicting or grieving men, Lamentation 3. But he uses trials and afflictions if necessary. It's not, you're not always under trial or not always being grieved. Not everybody faces the same trials, and it, it's not for your whole life, but it's according to God's purposes. And you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same word was, was used for him, for Christ. In Matthew 16, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. It was necessary. He needed to go to Jerusalem. Why? To suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. And Peter, who is writing this letter, did not understand what the Lord was saying. Peter took the Lord Jesus aside and he rebuked him and he said, This will not happen to you. You will not go and suffer. Far be it from you, Lord. It shall not happen to you, Peter said. Because we don't want to suffer. We don't want to see our loved ones suffer. But what did Jesus do? He turned to Peter and he rebuked him. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And immediately after that, Jesus said, Whoever desires to follow him must deny himself and take up his cross. And now, when Peter's writing this letter, he understands why Christ had to suffer and why Christians have to suffer. Christ suffered to pay for sin. And now here he explains why we suffer. And these trials are limited, he says, for a little while. Christian suffering is only temporal because Christ took the eternal suffering under the wrath of God. And this is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, For our light afflictions, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. John also in Revelation says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days, a little while, ten days, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And because of Christ, your suffering is limited, limited to the short life, limited to this earth, limited to short seasons in this life. And so God, he, he governs your trials. He is sovereign, and nothing happens by chance, but it's all governed by his fatherly hand. A good example of that is Job, how it's explained, how he allows it to come into his life. But it still makes us ask why, because we cannot see the purposes that God has in mind for us. It brings us to a second thought. God determines, God the Father determines the purposes for our trials. And verse 7 shows that the purpose is to test the genuineness of our faith. It says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. We care so much for gold, for the, for the money of this world. And we go to great lengths to make it, to save it, and to spend it. But it's perishable. It all perishes. But verse 19, the Lord says, or Peter says there, 
that you were saved and bought by the imperishable and much more precious blood of Christ. And so, how much more does God care for your faith, which is more precious than gold, more valuable than gold, and which will last longer than gold? And so, to test the genuineness of our faith, God tests us because we can be overconfident in ourselves. We need faith anchored in God, in Christ, not faith anchored in our own faith. Peter was overconfident. And in Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to, for you that he may sift you as wheat. And Peter, he answered and said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Overconfident in faith. We can think that we're not going to fall into temptation. We, we think we can handle uh, the persecutions that might come. We think we can handle the sicknesses that are brought our way or whatever might come into our life. We, we think, Lord, I am ready to face whatever you bring into my life. But if the Lord does not keep us, we will fall. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Where do we see ourselves being overconfident? Because Peter fell, David fell, Samson fell, Adam. You can think of many, and ourselves, Hezekiah. And we ourselves have fallen in many place, places. But then God also tests the weak in faith. Weak faith needs to be strengthened. Weak faith need, needs to be drawn out to verify that it is true faith, that it is indeed anchored in Christ. Gideon was weak in faith. He needed that double assurance that the Lord would go with him into battle. The Syrophoenician woman, you may remember, Mark 7, he came to, she came to the Lord Jesus because her daughter was vexed with the devil. And she had faith, but it was tested. First the disciples tried to send her away, then the Lord Jesus ignored her, and then the Lord Jesus even said some demeaning things to her that would make most people just discouraged or offended. But her faith was confirmed and strengthened because faith has nowhere else to go than to Christ. It can't give up. It must go, and her faith was confirmed and strengthened and rewarded. But then testing also uh, continues in life to, to strengthen the faith of His people. Strong faith still needs further assurance. Job was a righteous man. Satan tried to make him fall. But even during all those trials, the Lord strengthened his faith. And so what the Lord is doing is He's, he's testing to refine faith as gold is refined. Gold is refined by a process where the ore material is melted under a very intense heat, and it's poured into a porcelain dish, or, or it's called a crucible, into a vessel called a crucible, where, those, where the, certain chemicals are added, and it, and it causes the, the gold to separate from all the other objects, and the gold settles to the bottom, and it solidifies. And then later, that, that lump of gold is taken out, and it's again heated, and the the lead that was used to solidify it was also taken out, so it's further processed. And the refining of faith 
has a lot of similarities to that process because your life is subjected to intense heat of the trials and temptations. If you look at the Merriam-Webster definition for a crucible, it, it is defined as either a severe test or specifically a place or situation in which concentrated forces interact to cause or influence change or development. And that's really what happens under the test. You, you're, you're placed in a place or a situation where concentrated forces interact to influence, influence that change in your life. You can think again of the natural disasters, what kind of pressures and, and trauma that people are subjected to. You're put in that crucible. During persecutions, you face intense pressures. During sickness, especially terminal illness or, or, or lifelong situations, you, intense pressure, temptations to sin, such pressures that, that attract you and pull you. If you think specifically of Peter, when, when the Lord was, was taken into that house and Peter was tempted to deny Christ, because he was, if he would confess Christ, he, he, there was a risk of him being killed as well. There was a maid that kept calling him out as a disciple, and he had to, he, then he denied Christ under that pressure. David was under extreme pressure from his own sinful inclinations as he walked on the roof of his palace and he saw Bathsheba. You are in a crucible, a place of concentrated forces that bring change. Change either for good or change for evil, but it will change you. And gold settles, gold solidifies, gold bonds together when it's put under that test. And so also true faith will bond together. It will solidify. It will strengthen. And that is the purpose of this test. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That's the first aspect, to test the genuineness of your faith. And that test is used to discover, secondly, the genuineness of your faith, to discover this genuineness. So that, verse 7 continues on, and it says, so that it may be found to praise and honor and glory when it is revealed at the last time. So the test is used to discover the result, that it may be found. And that, that word that Peter uses there is a passive verb. So the test does not produce faith, but it discovers the presence of faith. The melting of the ore doesn't produce gold, but it discovers what kind of gold there is, how much there is, and of what value it is. Abraham was tested on Mount Moriah to discover that faith. Job was tested, and they triumphed. And the angel said to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God. Jesus could say to that Syrophoenician woman after, Great is your faith. After being put under those tests, her faith came out strong. And so genuine faith will endure that test. You know, for many years, gold was used as the benchmark, as the basis for, for monetary value. Because it doesn't decay, it lasts for thousands of years. And it's valued all around the world. It's valued all through time. In Genesis 2 already writes of gold, and Revelation speaks of the gold that, in, in the beauties of heaven. But Peter says gold perishes. The gold on earth will still perish because it's all created. 
and it will be destroyed. You can't take it through the river of death. Even do a lot of, a lot of kings ha- have gold buried in their tombs with them, hoping they can use it in the next life. But faith is much more precious. Faith does not perish. Faith is eternal because the value of faith is determined by the God who gives it. Faith is a gift of God, and that faith will be discovered. Your faith will be discovered, and your faith will praise God. It will share in that praise, that honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ because faith will endure the test, and faith will endure to the end of time. And so that brings us, lastly, to the third thought, that God causes you to rejoice despite your trials. As verse 8 says, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, with a joy, a joy that is much different than happiness, than mirth, as Ecclesiastes 7 said. Because happiness, remember, comes from the outside in by what can make us happy from the sensory pleasures. It's dependent on, on favorable circumstances. But joy comes from the inside out, despite the external circumstances. Because there is no joy, or no happiness, sorry, and no mirth in the crucible of affliction. These trials cause grief, but there's a joy that can exist. In, in, in full measure, in the midst of it. It's because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is the gift of God. Romans 15 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And so therefore your joy does not depend on the circumstances, but on the unchanging God of glory. And this joy is inexpressible. It's not the natural expression of happiness with excitement and laughter and giddiness, but it's inexpressible. It's a joy with a peace that endures. And how do you explain? How do you express a joy that fills your heart in the midst of trials? When everything that comes at you produces sadness, it produces hurt, pain, and grief, and yet there is a joy inexpressible, indescribable, uncontainable. Only those who have tasted of that joy can truly know what that is, inexpressible. And this joy then is expressed, how? It is expressed by love to God the Father through Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen you love, verse 8 says, the realization of this joy ignites that reciprocal love for God, It's a joy that only God can produce, and it's a joy that finds its source in God, a joy that returns to God. And that's how Peter can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a joy in the expression of that living hope that God the Father has has produced, begotten in you. It's further expressed by obedience to Christ. John 15 says, Lord Jesus says, if you keep His commandments, we will abide in His love, and our joy will be full. The most difficult time to obey God is when we're being pressed out of shape in the crucible of affliction. That's the most difficult time to obey, when nothing's going right, when your flesh wants to do everything to get out of the situation, 
when you're tempted in every way to curse God and die and to disobey and to escape those flames of the fiery furnace. But this is the crucial moment when you are being tested to see if this is where you, where you will obey, if you love Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's a refining fire. But it's further expressed also that joy is expressed by faith in Christ. Verse 8 continues and says, Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice. Your faith is being pressed out. All your false hopes are being burned off. All your overconfidence is being shown that it's nothing. All those impurities are being melted out. And as this faith settles down to the bottom, into the solid mass, where does it rest? In Christ. It all comes to rest in Christ. And then nothing but faith in Christ remains, because that's the only thing that can hold you up in these trials. Everything else is burned away. And that's what enables you to rejoice. Because when you see that all you have left is Christ, then all you have in Christ is everything you need for eternity. You can take nothing but your faith to the, to the grave. And nothing, everything else will vanish. And that is why God needs to refine and to purify our faith, to show if what we have is pure gold, pure faith, pure joy, that will stand the test even of death. And that's more precious to God and more precious to you than all the gold in this world that will perish and that will separate you from it at death. And lastly, it's a joy is expressed with patience. Romans 8 says, for we, are, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience or perseverance. And this is where I again want to refer to the catechism where it says in question 28, what does it profit us? And the answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from His love since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. The heart is made better. It does not set its hope on everything that fades in this world, everything that perishes in the shallow enjoyments that we can find here, but it finds its happiness, its joy in Christ, in patience waiting for Him. And then joy will be expressed, lastly, by seeing, receiving the end of your faith, verse 9 receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that is what matters. That is what we need. You receive from God your eternal salvation through faith. Your suffering now is not worthy to be compared with what is to come, Paul says, for our light affliction, which is but a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then you will have that joy indescribable for all eternity, that is the joy 
that believers can have in the providence of God, no matter what our lives must go through. Let us hope in Him. Amen.